it's exciting to have him here. He, he is, uh, he's been a missionary in China. Um, he's a lawyer, um, so don't hold that against him. There's other things as well. Um, he's an author. Uh, his latest book is called Made for People. Um, and uh, he is a husband to Lauren. He's a father to four sons. That's got to be wild ride. Um, but there's so many things I want to tell that I can't tell right now and probably shouldn't tell, but he will stay for faith and life class for everybody to talk about and lead us through some other aspects of this. Um, but he's also a friend. And so I want to introduce to you Justin Early. Come on up and we're delighted that you're with us today. Thanks, brother, especially for what you didn't say. <laughs> so I woke up to a phone call one morning. It's 6 a.m. This was about eight years ago. And it was a friend on the line, and he told me that a mutual friend of ours was in trouble. Um, we had a dear friend who was traveling overseas. He was in Mali, Africa. And I found out that morning at 6 a.m. that his hotel had been overtaken by terrorists. So they had shot the guards, and they were prowling the hallways with assault rifles and trying the doors of unarmed guests and shooting them. I found out that my friend was in this hotel, and he had, the internet had stayed on in the hotel, so he'd been able to shoot off an email to us saying what was happening and saying, pray for me. And me and all our other friends got down on our knees that morning I remember walking down, and like this was like you know, 5 a.m. in the morning, it was still dark, walking down to my living room, just laying on the floor and pleading for the life of my friend. And all over the city of Richmond, there were other friends and family members doing the same thing, on their knees, praying. And at the same time, we would find out he was on his knees, leaning up against a barricade of furniture that he had built against the door as he felt the knob being tried. I always carry this moment with me because it reminds me of the high stakes of life. And it reminds me of the high stakes of friendship. You know, Genesis tells us that evil crouches at the door and wants entry, but that we can overcome it through God and the people of God. And what I want to talk to you about this morning, I start with such a sobering story, because what I want to tell you this morning is that you were made not just for God, but for the people of God. You were made for people. And you cannot live the way God made you to live unless you live into that kind of community. The stakes of life are high, and you need God and the people of God to survive. So this morning I want to talk to you about that. And Andrew could have said a lot of things to embarrass me and introduce me. But let me just tell you a little bit more about myself. So the most important thing you need to know about me is not that I'm a lawyer, an author, or anything else. The most important thing you need to know about me is that in high school, I was the kind of guy who tucked in his t-shirts. So in ninth grade, um, I also played the clarinet, and I had Bible verses all over my binders. So you can imagine how well high school was going for me. <laughs> it wasn't great. I had just moved to town. Um, I was the son of a politician who had gotten elected here around Richmond. And so I was known by everybody at Midlothian High School as like the new kid, but I didn't know anybody. And everything about life was hard. I mean, everything was a cause for 
tremendous anxiety. And I thought that's just way, the way that life was. Um, until a moment at the high school lockers changed my life. Um, here's how I got there. So I started going to this youth group that Andrew was leading. And I, my parents made me, so they made me go on this youth retreat. And I remember I knew no one there, but I met this guy named Steve this weekend. I can't remember where it was. Maybe Andrew does. But I met this guy named Steve, and we bonded over uh, drum sets, skateboards, and hacky sacks. Very 1990s stuff. And you may or may not know what a hacky sack is. For the purpose of this conversation, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that we had this, um, what I, the C.S. Lewis U2 moment of conversation. So C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Four Loves, that friendship arises when two companions discover that they have in common something, and they say, what? You two? I thought I was the only one. And then, through semi-articulate fumblings, a friendship is born. Now, semi-articulate fumblings is the perfect way to describe what happened next at the lockers with Steve and I, because after bonding over hacky sacks and drum sets and skateboards, we were standing at the lockers one day in high school, and Steve looks at me and says, do you want to be best friends? <laughs> and, I, and as if that was a normal thing to ask, and as if it was just like a regular question, I was just like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And then that was it, like moment over. Um, it was as awkward as it sounds. <laughs> But my life began to totally change. Not because the circumstances of public adolescent high school changed, not at all, but because I no longer faced those circumstances alone. And I will tell you, ever since then, I've had this uncanny feeling that I was made for this, that I was made for friendship. And it would be decades before I realized how theologically true that statement was and why exactly I felt the way I did. But that's my claim this morning, and I, I want to walk you through three things. I think we got a slide for this. One, why you were made for friendship, biblically speaking. Number two, why the gospel explains friendship, and vice versa, why friendship kind of explains an important part of the gospel. And then three, how to do it, okay? So why you were made for friendship, how it explains the gospel, and then how to do it. All right, to jump in, let's look at Genesis for a minute. I'm, I'm going to say this often. You were made for people. You were made for friendship. Why? Okay, think back with me to Genesis for a minute. You, you know these verses. I'm going to go through a bunch of them. But in the beginning of the world, God is speaking the world into existence, right? He's creating water and light, trees, penguins, pineapples, all the things. He just speaks the world into existence. And what does he keep saying? After he creates light, he calls it good, right? Creates day and night, calls it good. So you hear good, 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 and then God creates man and woman, calls them very good. You have this cadence in Genesis of good, 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 very good, until Genesis 2 goes back, right, and recounts the, the creation story of Adam and Eve. Adam comes first, and then God looks at Adam and says something wild. He says, it is not good that you are alone. All right, one, this is an interruption to the flow, right? So we're supposed to pay attention here. Two, think of how odd this is. God looks at Adam and says, it's not good that you're alone. Can you imagine being on a date with your spouse, and you're like, this is such, think about Valentine's Day coming up. Oh, this is such a great evening if I weren't so lonely. It wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't go over very well, right? It's like, you're there, your spouse is there, you're together. Lonely should not be the right word to describe the situation. God is with Adam, and says it's not good that you're alone, which signals something that sounds 
strange at first, but we can rely on it as true because the triune God said it. And that is that you can be lonely with God. Now, that's not because God has any lack. It's because God made you such that you can't experience God the way that you were meant to until you experience him alongside others. That's why I say you were made for people. And so then Adam gets Eve, the creation of community. And there's so much about this verse that's also about Adam's need for help in the world, also about marriage. But there's something in here fundamentally about the plurality of human beings. We're created in the triune image of God, in the community of God. And Adam is not good until he's with Eve. And then you get this beautiful statement at the end of Genesis, where, in, in the Genesis 2, where Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. Think of it this way. They're fully known to each other, and yet without shame. Fully known, fully loved. That is the life that you were made for. To be fully known by God and others, and yet without shame, fully loved. Now that's also the life we lost in the fall. Because this, this paradise of relationship lasts for about uh, a sentence. And then we get to Genesis 3. And what happens in the fall, lots of things. But think about how the breakdown is all relational, right? There are fig leaves and bushes. Fig leaves, Adam and Eve start hiding from each other. The human condition. We're made to be fully known, but we start hiding. And then the bushes, we start hiding from God, right? Kind of like a toddler under the bed sheets. Like, this is going to work really well. <laughs> hiding behind the bushes from God. And th but this is the human condition. We hide from God. And if you just start following Genesis, you see all of these just concentric circles of the world falling apart. Think about the Cain story. Cain commits the world's first murder. And what's the punishment for his crime? God sends him out, away. And Cain cries out. He actually says, no, I'll be hidden from your face. And people who find me will kill me. I'll be a restless wanderer. Cain essentially says, this is a death sentence. People who find me will kill me. Because it's true, and this is why I want to take you through these verses of Genesis. Loneliness and isolation, fig leaves and bushes, are a death sentence. Because you are made for the kind of life that is known to God and known to others. And loneliness, isolation, is spiritual death. Which, by the way, totally explains the world we're living in. Have you noticed this? Have you heard, so if you're paying attention at all, you'll have heard over and over this phrase called the epidemic of loneliness that is now haunting the Western world, America in particular. Surgeon General report from 2023, this summer, shows that we're, we've been dying younger for the past couple years. This is actually before COVID started. And it's not just because of, COVID made it worse for sure. But the, the deaths that are bringing down the average are things like suicide, opioid overdose, overdoses, alcohol abuse, drug addictions, all the things that come with living the kind of lives that make us isolated and broken down. So the Surgeon General quotes this study that chronic loneliness reduces your life expectancy to the tune of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So this is, it's like factually true that loneliness will kill you. But it's not just in the body, it's in the soul too. You will fall apart because of loneliness. Now, you might hear this stuff and you think, oh wow, that's terrible, but that's somebody else, like out there. That's not us in he here. No. Actually, th this is in the church too. So have you ever been at the beach, right, and you get in the water, boogie boarding or something, or hanging out, and then suddenly you look and like you're way down the beach, right? 
because a current is dragging, and you have to swim pretty hard or get up on the sand and walk back. Currents exist. Cultural currents exist too. Currents are the things that move us down the shoreline of life unless we fight back against them. And what I want you to know this morning is that we are living in a current of isolation and loneliness. So if you do nothing, you will become a busier, wealthier person who used to have friends. That's the current of American life. That's the current in the church, right? If you don't do anything, you can sit here around other people as you can anywhere in America and be lonely in a crowd, be totally isolated in a small group. And whatever, I don't know what it is for you. Um, it could be that you're at the age where your, your friends are starting to pass away. Or it could be you're at the age where you just came out of college and realize that nothing is shepherding you into community anymore. It could be because you're a young parent and you realize, I don't have any more time. Like, I, I don't have time to go 6.30 a.m. or 6.30 p.m. I can't go to the small group. You, you know, or it could be that 2020 rearranged all your relationships and now you're like, I don't know who I can talk to. I don't know what people believe anymore. But whatever it is, it is so normal to become the busier, wealthier person who used to have friends. That's the current you're living in. And like any current, if you don't pay attention, you're like a child swept down the beach. And the most dangerous illnesses are always the ones that are ignored, right, or that you don't know about. So we're in, da- like we're in danger unless there is somebody who is bigger than us and stronger than us and who loves us enough to come into that current and pull us out. And I want to tell you this morning, that man's name is Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that the story of friendship with God and others, and then isolation from God and others, praise God, doesn't stop in Genesis 3. And this is the passage I picked out to preach from this morning. So I want to read it to you. This is from John 15. I think we can get that on the screen, right? Jesus is covenant friendship made flesh. Jesus is the answer to all our lonely longings. And if you got to pay attention to John 15 because Jesus says some incredible things. This is the night before he's about to die, right? And he's sitting with his disciples, and he's telling them all these things that, that will be, you know, cherished by them. They'll be written down by John. This is just incredible dinner conversation. And one of the things that he says to them is this short little speech on friendship. And he says, my commandment is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master is doing. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. So much here. It's rightfully one of the most poetic passages in in John. But think about this. Jesus is saying, I am giving you back what you lost in Eden. So I I am calling you friends. I'm making you friends of God again. And And, you know, if we're God's friends, then we're each other's friends, right? This is why we pass the peace after we're reinstated. Because if, if we're in the circle of God, then we're in the circle of each other. And Jesus... Jesus is really expanding on salvation. Jesus is saying, I'm not just saving you from your sin, though that's true. He's saving us from a life of sin and isolation to a life of righteousness and community because that's the story of God. He's like, here's where I'll be a lawyer for a minute, right? Let me make my case. <laughs> if in Genesis we were made to be fully known and fully loved, but in the fall we traded being fully known for hiding 
and being fully loved for shame. One of the things Jesus is doing in salvation is saying, I know you fully. I'm not, I, I get it. I see you. And I love you anyway. Jesus is saying, what, what is a friend besides somebody who knows you so well that they see all your weird stuff? They know your corny jokes. They know how you break down. They know what stresses you out. And yet they keep coming back anyway. A true friend is someone who discloses life to you, right? And they see you, vulnerability. Well, Jesus is being vulnerable here. He's saying everything that I've learned from the Father, I've made known to you. It, but Jesus is also being vulnerable to the point of death, right? Jesus is saying, greater love has none than this, that someone lay down their life for a friend. Jesus' vulnerability, the Latin root of vulnerability is to be capable of being wounded. Okay, so Jesus is ultimately vulnerable to us. But he's also committed. He's sticking around. He says, I choose you. And if you think about this, you see this archetype of the ultimate friend, somebody who you can be vulnerable to because Jesus knows us. He's vulnerable to, to us, and yet he's committed. He's choosing us. And this is, I, I, I want to tell you this morning, you can understand the gospel in terms of this sort of vulnerable commitment. And I would call it covenant friendship. And the reason I call it that is because if you just call it friendship, I mean, friendship is a great word, but it's lost a lot of meaning in, in the past century, if not more. I mean, C.S. Lewis was complaining about this in the 1940s, I think. So it's been happening for a while. Now we're, we live in a time where Facebook has made the, the word friend a verb, something you can just do with a click. So friend, the word friend has been diluted. But I want to offer you the phrase covenant friendship to say this is what Jesus is offering us in the gospel, and it's what he's calling us to do with each other. If we're supposed to become imitators of God, as Ephesians says, then looking more and more like Jesus necessarily means looking more and more like a friend. So you should, you should think of the word friendship and hear it with all the spirituality that you hear the word quiet time or church or prayer, i.e. something that is absolutely essential to the Christian life because it is. You were made for this. But the current we're living in drags us away from this. So, brothers and sisters, what would it look like then to swim against the current? I, I want to give you five brief practices. Five brief practices that would allow us to say, as a church, how could we enact the kind of covenant friendship that Jesus gives us? How could we give it to each other? Vulnerability, commitment, time, technology, evangelism. I'm going to walk you through each of these. All right, vulnerability. I touched on this, but let me, let me dive deeper here. So I was hanging out with a friend one night in my living room when we got a phone call and heard that another friend of ours had become addicted pretty badly to prescription drugs. And he had just fessed up about it. So we learned that this guy, we had no idea this was going on in his life. We knew him really well. But he had become addicted to prescription drugs so badly that he was actually stealing them out of other people's apartments. And the question in our mind that night, as we hung up the phone, we were like, oh my gosh, the question was not, how did this happen? Because honestly, I was already, at the time of the story, like 29, maybe 30. It didn't take me that long to start to realize that, oh, okay, now, men and women fall in private long before they fall in public. This is not unusual to hide something that eats you from the inside out. The question that we had for each other that night was, is there anything you're not telling me? And that was a significant moment for me and this friend sitting in that living room. Uh, because think about it. 
all of us have this fallen capacity to live behind the fig leaves in life. It is so easy to live a hidden life. That's why I call it the current. Because if you do not actively try alongside Jesus to say, no, Lord, help me be known to you and to others, you will hide. And this could be like, you know, fake user accounts or, you know, burner phones. This could be like real secrets you're hiding. But it could also just be the trauma that you haven't shared yet, capital T or lowercase t. It could be the insecurities you have that you've just never given voice to. It could be the struggles in your marriage that only you and your spouse know, but you, you're not courageous enough to talk to anyone else about yet. But whatever it is, I just want to tell you what the Psalms say, and that is that when you keep things hidden, you will melt from the inside out. The way that David puts it is, my bones burn within me until I confess. And that night, me and my friend looked at each other, and we were like, all right, is there anything you're not telling me? Let me tell you, it was an intense moment. It is an uncomfortable question to be asked. But remember, the Latin root of vulnerability, to be capable of being wounded. And our, my friend and I looked at each other that night, that night, and we're like, no, actually, you know everything. And I just want to ask you this morning, do you have somebody in your life who's like that? Somebody in your life who knows you so well that they could wound you, but they stick around anyway and love you? If you don't, I'm going to say, send somebody a text after this sermon. It could just be, you know, Hey, I got something I want to talk to you about. Or, hey, I heard something in church this morning I want to talk to you about. But, you know, I'm, and I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that you should go around telling everything to just anyone, anytime. That's the mark of emotional unhealth, not health, okay? But I'm saying, you know, Jesus kept a few people really close to him. And he modeled a type of relationship that endures. Do you have a couple people like that? Now, as much as I think vulnerability is important, to be fully known without being fully loved is what we do to celebrities. That's to be exposed. You know, that's like cancel culture. It's like, here's everything you did. I'm out. That, that's, not, that's not the gospel. And to, but to be fully loved without being fully known, well, that's to be hidden. That's what happens sometimes in family or churches and small groups where we're not actually honest with each other. So the second point is not just vulnerability, but commitment. Because we gotta be fully known to each other, but also stick around. A story for you here. A couple years ago, I was getting to know this guy named Barrett, and he gave me permission to share this story. And we didn't know each other that well, but we were hanging out one night and having that kind of you two conversation. Now, Barrett was much less awkward than my friend Steve at the locker, so we were, we were like realizing that we had a lot in common. He was just like, hey, you know, we should lean into this relationship. We should do this more often. Super simple, but he did name something. He just said, let's do this more often. And it was incredible. Those simple words created a new rhythm for us. We started hanging out about once a month, started really talking. And I always think about this because, you know, we just went over God in Genesis, spoke the world into existence, right? It, words have a phenomenal creative power because God created the world in words and then he passed this power on to, to Adam when he says, hey, name the world. So think of yourself as a little reflection of God. Your words have incredible creative power to name new realities. And when you name a relationship like that, just saying, let's do this more often. Or, hey, friend, I appreciate you. Can we lean into this? Amazing things happen. In fact, Barrett then invited me to be in his wedding only 12 months later. I'd only known him for a year and a half. He invited me to be a groomsman in his wedding. And he gave all his groomsmen, right before the ceremony, this bottle of scotch. And on all the different bottles were in black Sharpie marker, a different number. Mine was 2035. 
And I was like, Barrett, what, is, what are these numbers? And he's like, oh, that's the year we'll open this and taste it together. I was like, 2035. This was like over two decades away. I was so honored and taken aback. One, honored, because Barrett assumed that we'd be still hanging out and talking, that we'd still be friends in two decades. It was a great honor. I was also taken aback because it was like, well, I was not asked about this. Like, this was just assumed. And I've never forgotten that. And I want to just encourage you to not just be vulnerable with people, not just make yourself truly known, but act like Jesus and like my friend Barrett and say, I choose you. Like, I want to stick around with you. And typically, the simplest way to do this is just to use that beautiful creative power of words and say, could we meet more often? Or, hey, I really appreciate you, and I would love to lean into this relationship more. Or just to name, like, you're one of the closest friends I've ever had. Do you want to walk in covenant friendship? This will be a little bit awkward most of the time, all right? But one of the most awkward moments of my life at the lockers changed my life forever. So don't be afraid for, to do a little awkward intentionality. It could be a couple friend that you have that you give them tickets to a concert a year from now. Just signaling, hey, I hope you, you and your wife still walk with me and my wife. This could just be naming a, a small group and saying, I, I think of you guys as covenant friends. Whatever it is, lean a little more, not a little less, into commitment. All right, practice number three I want to share with you is just about time and scheduling. Because, maybe it's because I'm a lawyer, father of four boys who also writes books and speaks on the side. I, I run in circles where everybody thinks they are just way too busy, okay? And by the way, I never hear an objection to covenant friendship, like, oh, that's not a good idea. No, everybody says, that's common sense, just not common practice. Like, I don't have time, okay? However, the phenomenal thing about time is we all actually have the exact same amount of it every day. The question is just how you use it, right? And so the encouraging thing that I want to tell you is that you, you actually have time for friendship. And here's the habit that I would recommend. Consider devoting one hour a week to nurturing friendship. One hour a week. Like, I don't know how you picture your schedule. I don't know if you have a calendar or what. Consider just saying, I want to find one block of time, one hour, to work on friendship. And if you're like, I don't have that time, I'd be like, let me see your phone real quick. Just want to, let me see your Netflix stats real quick. Let me see your screen stats real quick. You, you got that time. I don't know what stage of life you're in, but everybody's got an hour. But the good news is, I don't want to make you feel guilty. I want to make you feel encouraged. Because here's, here's the reality. Anything else in life, that is essential for physical survival and for spiritual thriving, like covenant friendship is, takes a ton of time, okay? Think, on the physical side, think about this. You gotta eat, like, a lot. Even if you're one of those intermittent fasters, you're still eating a lot every day. Um, you gotta sleep, hopefully, at least seven hours to stay healthy. If you're a parent, like, you gotta parent more hours than you sleep to keep those children alive. You gotta work a lot. Like, surviving takes a lot of time, even in 2024. Spiritual thriving, there's also, a, there's a set of spiritual disciplines I would hope that is just normal for you, that you're reading bi the Bible regularly, if not daily, that you're, that you're thinking, like the New Testament tells us, to pray without ceasing. You know, all these important things of our life, we do all the time. But I want to tell you, friendship, about one hour a week, will totally change your life. And I think of that as, a, as just a, like a little mark of grace that we can put fumbling efforts towards conversations with other people one hour a week, and God will use them to totally change our life. The, the impact is disproportionate to the effort, and that's exactly what happens when God gets involved in our life. He uses our little half efforts and says, child, I'm going to bless you. 
And what I want to say is like, the hour of friendship that the Lord has helped me commit to every week has made me a totally different person. The way that I do this is with two of my closest friends named Matt and Steve. Steve is, yes, that friend from the lockers. We're still trucking. And we do a, a standing hangout every other Tuesday. And what we, what we do is we just get together. And at first it seems normal, right? We're just talking about sports, catch up on life. We're laughing, joking, making a lot of fun of each other. I have four boys, right? And my, my wife is always like, is it normal the amount that they insult each other? And I'm like, have you heard me and Steve greet each other? <laughs> have you heard me and Matt and Steve talk? She's like, oh, yeah, I guess. We, you know, we spend a lot of time joking around, making fun of each other. But then about, you know, 45 minutes into the conversation, somebody would be like, so how's your marriage doing? You shared something, you know, a couple weeks ago about this. Or how's that struggle with mental health that, that you were talking about? Or how's that thing at work going? Or, and we just start walking. How are your kids? And we, we get to the point over the rhythm, right? Not necessarily every single gathering, but over the rhythm of time where they know my internet history, I know their financial spending, we know each other's fights with our spouses, we root for each other's spouses, we're like, man, you need to stop, like, she's right, you know she's right. We know, the, like, the stuff going on with kids, um, and I'm standing up in front of you this morning as a person without secrets because of that rhythm. Now, I'm not saying I'm good, right? If you knew my secrets, you might be like, Andrew, why'd you invite this guy to talk to us? But that would be true of you too. The fact is, wait for it, we're all sinners. And the fact is, in friendship, you don't have an option except to be friend with sinners. This means that we're constantly going to encounter people who are broken. And all I'm saying is, why don't we talk like it? Like, why don't we get together in rhythms of community and talk the way that Jesus talks about us, that, that acknowledges that, brother, sister, you can be broken and known and still loved. And that is a beautiful thing. And I just want to say, because of that small rhythm of being vulnerable and known with Steve and Matt, and seeing them look at me and say, Justin, I, I hear you, I see your sin, but I love you and Jesus loves you anyway. And they say that out loud. Bonhoeffer once wrote that the words of Christ are truer in the mouth of your brother or sister. And, and I think it's so true to hear the words of the gospel through your friends is to say, oh my gosh, the gospel's not abstract anymore. In friendship, you can feel the love of Christ of being truly known and truly loved. It's a gift. And so I'm just saying, take that common sense and make it a habit. Make it common practice. Think this could be, maybe you're here in church this morning, this could be starting to go to your small group. Or if you're going to a small group, it could be kicking up an accountability group. Or it could just be taking that person that you text and saying, hey, do you want to meet every other week? Whatever it is, make a little step towards it. Um, I got two more quick, this one's going to be really quick, technology. You can't talk about relationships now without talking about technology. Because surprise, surprise, some technological innovations have happened over the past two decades that have radically reshaped our relationships. Not telling you anything you don't know. But, there, you know, Zooms, FaceTimes social media, text messages. There are so many things now that mediate relationships with each other. And I could, and I love, I, I, a lot of my writing is about technology and spirituality. I could talk about this all day, but I'm gonna keep this one really short. I just wanna tell you, technological interactions are snacks. Embodied relationships are meals. You know the difference. Live healthily. You know what happens when you eat just snacks, right? You have the feeling of being full, but your body is completely unnourished. 
And if you live like that, you'll die. Your body will start to change, melt down, and you will die. Your soul is the same. Okay? I love Oreos. I love guacamole. Don't live on them. <laughs> they tied you over. They're de little delights. Technolo I love my text chains with friends. I love the insane amount of ridiculous gifs or gifs, whatever your pronunciation is. <laughs> I get a lot of flack. I'll say one or the other, and people will be like, I was tracking you until you said gif. And then I change it, and they're like, I was tracking you until you said gif, <laughs> whatever it is. I love like, our, our text chains. I love seeing the pictures of kids. We have a lot of prayer requests, political debates, everything. But I'm just saying, that's not the same as sitting down in a room with a friend and, and being able to cry with them. That's not the same as being able to see their facial expressions, being able to hug them. It's not the same as being in a room, okay? We come to church in part so we can be really close together, get annoyed by each other, and learn to forgive each other. That's, that's the life of living around sinners. Get close. Live an embodied relationship. That's the meal. All right, my last point for you, evangelism. Um, I want to go back to the story I started with. So in high school, my relationship with Steve started to grow as we grew in our faith. So we didn't just start bonding over uh, hacky sacks and drum sets. We started, praise God, really walking with each other as we walked with the Lord. And this was in no small part because of the youth group that Andrew was running. We learned so much through Andrew. And I remember, actually, we were just in our, his office um, right before then. I, I looked at a picture on his bookshelf. I was like, is that Troy and John? He was like, yeah. I was like, you used to talk about them. Andrew would talk about two of his closest friends that he would get together with very often. And watching him and watching others in that youth group model friendship, Steve and I started walking really close with each other as we walked with the Lord. Now, something else happened. We met this other guy that clearly wanted to start hanging out with us. Also like drum sets, skateboards, and hacky sacks. And, but we did this thing where we held him at arm's length because we thought that to keep our friendship close, we had to keep it closed. And that is, the, I just want to say very clearly, that is the worst and most evil thing that you can ever do, to exclude other people from the circle of covenant friendship. Because think about how antithetical to the gospel it is. God, the Trinity, at great cost, opened the circle of fellowship to us through the death of his son Jesus so that we could become friends of God. To exclude others from that is horrible. Now, to make a long story uh, a lot shorter, what was remarkable about this is that Steve and I finally repented, asked for this guy's for forgiveness. And this guy, despite our meanness to him, came to know Jesus through those friendships. Now, that's providence and grace, by the way. This guy got baptized, and this guy's name is Matt. And he's the one that me and Steve still hang out with every other night. Matt is one of my dearest friends, and I actually named my son Asher Stephen Matthew Early in honor of these two guys, Steve and Matt. And it reminds me, both the Asher means the happiness of God. It reminds me both that the happiness of God is found in covenant friendship, but it also reminds me that the fire of friendship is contagious. And I just want to say, as it relates to evangelism, when we do covenant friendship together, people want in. They might think what we believe is weird, but they, they say, that's a community I want to be a part of. And most of the people that I've seen come to know Jesus, at least in America, when I was a missionary in China, it was, it was different. Most of the people I see come to know Jesus in America do so because relationships draw them in to the good news of the gospel. And so I just want to say, light up the world with friendship. Don't close it off. 
practice it so you make it a fire and invite everybody into it. I can't finish real quick without telling you what happened to my friend and Molly. Praise God that when the door opened, it was not to a terrorist, but it was to a UN special ops Frenchman with an assault rifle who, who told my friend, grab my hand, we're running out that stairwell, and they ran out to safety. My friend it took a week to get back to the country, but let me tell you, when he got back, we threw the biggest party. <laughs> it was beautiful. They all came over to my house around the spot in the living room where I prayed on the floor. We gathered, we prayed, we sang, we talked, we rejoiced. And I just want to tell you, I felt like I saw a vision from Revelation that night where, where the people of God, friends, were gathered because one of us had been snatched from the jaws of death. And I, like, if you think the story of friendship in the Bible from Genesis through Jesus ends in community and fellowship, and I saw a picture of that that night, just to be amongst friends celebrating and praising God because we have been snatched from the jaws of death. That is the good news. Our final destination is friendship. And it's because of Jesus we get there. My friend told me about another person in that hotel that night. He was sharing stories. And this woman had the same experience. A Marine, a U.S. Marine, actually opened her door. Same thing. Assault rifle raised. He reached out, said, grab my hand, don't let go. We're going out the stairwell. And she looked down and she saw on the Marine's arm numbers written. And they were all crossed off except for the last one, which was her hotel room number. He was going through and just getting all the Americans in the hotel. And I, I held on to that picture because I thought, that's an image of covenant friendship. That's Jesus. He knows us. He knows where we are. And that's what he calls us to do, to know each other's name and to say, I'm not letting you live alone. And Jesus, of course, is the one with our names written on his hands. So look to him, the image of covenant friendship. You cannot do this without him, but there is a man who snatches you from the jaws of death. His name is Jesus. Accept his covenant friendship and turn to the world and give it to others. It's a matter of life and death. Let me pray for you.